G'day and thanks for joining us for another Australia Talks podcast, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. I'm DK and I'm joined as always by my lovely co-host RD. Today is Tuesday the 27th of June and our topics this week are Labor is scaling back a multinational tax disclosure and Australia aims to build the first complete quantum computer. And of course, we have our Two Ticks Town Talk, and then we'll jump into this week in Australian history with our date, and we'll finish off, as always, with the Forex bottle top question. But before we get into all of that, how are you today? I'm travelling well, DK. I've uh, had a reasonably quiet week, although I've been pursuing archery the last few weeks. It's been something that's been on the list. I can't have, have I mentioned that before? No, that's cool. Yeah, I didn't. Yeah, yeah, I didn't think. I didn't think so. That would be one of those old old men who talk about a story that they've talked before. I mean, a mate of mine. There's a cartoon that we both enjoyed, and there's two old spiders sitting on the uh, veranda on their chairs, and one of the spiders is saying, did I ever tell you about the time a spider, uh, a fly flew right into my mouth? And the other one, go, other one goes, only about a hundred times before. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad I didn't... Yeah, no, archery, I mean, as you, as you and the listeners know, I do, uh, do pistol shooting, and archery had been on the list. I'd done a, an introduction course at the, the local club, and I thought, oh, I'll give this a little bit more of a, a crack. Did their next uh, one, the basic archery course, which is uh, three weekends for a couple of hours on the Saturday that's a uh, sort of standardised introduction for Archery Australia that each of the uh, the clubs do. And I enjoyed it. Like the pistol shooting, I enjoy the, the sort of the, the body discipline and the... Uh, repeatability of it and just trying to get multiple uh, multiple elements all into line to get the perfect shot yeah it was it was something that to me it was it was easier than I thought it would be to get the arrow on the target and way way harder than I thought it would be to actually get an accurate shot let alone repeat it. So uh, it's been something I've been doing now for a, a few weeks. Uh, I'll hopefully uh, grab myself a bow this um, this Saturday uh, for one of the, the people there who's uh, he's, he's an accomplished archer and uh, he's got a second-hand one for sale. So I thought, look, that's what I want. Uh, it's It's been really interesting. I yeah, it's it's a, another another avenue of uh, self discipline that I'm looking forward to exploring. Yeah, no, cool. That is really cool. I um, I, I, you know, I've done a little bit of archery when I was a yep. kid, and and um, that's sort of the the extent of my uh, archery knowledge. Though I have, I, I do know friends that have done it. Um, and I had a, a when I was growing up, actually, I had a friend whose dad used to do archery, like hunting, bow hunting. He'd mm. hunt deer with a bow, mm. um, and I always thought that was pretty cool because to be out there, you know, most people obviously use a rifle, uh, but he's out there with a with a bow and arrow. Uh, but he he had all the gear. He was very serious about it. It wasn't you know, uh, it wasn't 
it wasn't a game, even though we thought it was it was pretty cool. But um, no, that's exciting. Cool. Yeah, look, that's I, I. I would like to uh, do do some bow hunting in the future, but uh, you know when I'm when I've got the rifle, I've got a, a a certain target size at you know the the fifty to hundred mark. Uh, unless I can reliably throw an arrow down at that um, that mark at at fifty meters, uh, I'm a long way off doing it. But you know, you don't get there unless you start, do you? Exactly. Everyone starts. Yeah. Uh, starts somewhere, don't they? Exactly. What have you been up to? It's school holidays at the moment. I'm a few days off, oh, and okay. uh, it's just been. Uh, Am I just coincidentally my uh, my grandparent in laws are up from Sydney at the same time, uh, and so it's just been it's just been lots of family stuff really, lots of barbecues, lots of lots of sitting around the fire drinking beer. Actually, I can't really complain too much if I'm honest. Um, <laughs> Suffering through. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, so no, we're we're you know it's it's been pretty laid back. This we're going camping tomorrow. Um, myself and the boys, we're doing a little boys trip just just for one night. Uh, so we're gonna good. we're gonna do some four wheel driving and uh, take some beautiful photos for our uh, post your environment Mondays. Mm. Uh, so hopefully, I'll get a couple of couple of beautiful photos for that. Um, so I'm pretty. We're going to be leaving fairly early in the morning. So I'm looking forward to that though. Um, getting out there, getting the car dirty, and and having a good time. Really, is this your first uh, like all, all boys trip with the boys? Yeah, they haven't. Um, uh, like you know, I go with my mates uh, several times a year, but my two boys, um, for one reason or another, have never. I've never sort of made it onto the trip. It's always one of them's got plans or or both of them or the weather's crap or, or something. There's always some reason for it. Um, but all the stars aligned and uh, a mate's coming with me and his his son is also coming with me. Uh, um, so right. there'll, there'll be five of us, uh, three, three little ones and uh, the two adults. And now nah, it'll be great fun. We'll do some fishing. Uh, sit around the fire. We're just roughing it. We're eating, eating snags cooked on the fire. Which yep. the boys, one's excited, the other's not. Uh, so <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know, <laughs> he he likes his um, he likes his luxuries and his amenities and everything like that. And I said, no, no, it'll be good to get you out there to rough it for a bit. So where we're going, there is no amenities at all. So you know, if you need to go to the number twos, you got to dig a hole. Uh, yep. and all that stuff. So he's not super keen, but I think he'll have a good time once he's out there. So he doesn't oh, look, have a choice. He's coming. It's a good experience. And, and, yeah, it's, it is. One, look, I get the, um, the the reticence at getting out there and digging a, digging a hole. Uh, but you know, once you once you, once you get out into nature and do it, it sort of breaks a barrier, doesn't it? Exactly, and it just becomes a non-issue. Really, after a little while, you just yeah. sort of go, "Oh well, this is." I think I think it's amazing how quickly people can adapt to their environment and mm-hmm. and sort of just get used to everything. So. Um, but it'd be good for them to rough it a bit. They've never slept in a swag before, so uh, luckily I have uh, a single swag and a double swag. So uh, the double swag is much more comfortable for when I go just by myself. But um, 
unfortunately I'll give them the double and they can they can double up in there and I'll have the single swag and it's going to be cold though. Um, You're a swag. So- I'll. I'll, oh, sorry. I'll, I just I just interrupt. I want to hear the rest of it, but I also do want to just get a little bit of uh, info on the the swag. But sorry, it, it'll be cold. Uh, what Queensland cold? It'll be it'll yeah. be under twenty three or something. <laughs> yeah, basically, <laughs> um, Queensland cold. It's gonna be. Hang on, let me see. I'll look it up. Yeah, it'll be. Oh no, I think it's gonna get down into single digits. Um, let's see, quick. If it loads. It'll be tomorrow, like, so tomorrow night, it's got a low of 15, so oh, it's actually it's actually fairly warm, so it's not going to be that cold. Yeah, yeah. Poor us, you know. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. I'm glad you're getting it there. Just, uh, yeah, I was just curious with the uh, the, the swag. You're, you enjoy the swag? Oh, I love sleeping in a swag. The only downside of sleeping in a swag is uh, if you're on the floor, which we will be this time, sometimes I'll set up like a stretcher bed and I'll put the swag on top um, to keep you off the ground. Uh, If you're on the ground, uh, it's just a real pain to get out of if you need to pee at night or even Mm -hmm. get up in the morning. It's sort of, you know, um, I'm in from basically laying on the floor uh, is especially when you need to pee is just not, and it's cold. It's not the best experience. Uh, yeah. But other than that is the swag is very comfortable. And um, it, my swag does keep me quite warm. The single swag that is, cause it is very small. It Everyone jokes and says it looks like a coffin cause it's, right. it's a single swag. It's only meant yeah. for one person, um, but it, it sort of traps the layer of air. So it is very nice and warm in there. Um, during during the winter, which is nice. Yeah, look, I, I, I was asking because I, you know, when I get out, I usually sort of, I, I've, well, they call it a two man tent, but you know, it's it's two men technically on how you measure the the floor of it. To me, it's a it's yeah. a, a squeezy one man, um, and I sort of prefer to be in that because I've got a because it's it's compact. You know, like the swags to me are a large. Um, because you've got the mattress in there and it, it's it's rolled up. Yes. Um, they do take up a lot of room. Yeah. So um, where we're going, like, we'll be four driving in. So room's not like, like, we're not carrying them. Like, if yeah, I was going hiking yeah. to a location, then, yeah, the swag would be wildly inappropriate just because, yeah, it just takes up too much room. But... Um, the fact that we're we're full wheel driving into this specific location, um, and we'll be camping right next to the Ute, uh, it you know uh, it's not so much of an issue. No, sometimes we have to put them on the roof, depending on how much um, you know other gear that we're taking. But because we're only going for one night, we're not taking a huge amount of stuff. Though, admittedly, actually, now that I think about it, there's a lot of stuff that we have to take just for one night that. We have to take if we're there for multiple days as well. So yeah, that is exactly. a little bit annoying. Exactly. You end up, you know, taking a lot of stuff seemingly for one night, but that's what you have to do. Um, I no, it'll be. Oh, it'll I, hope be have, I hope you have a good trip. That sounds that 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 sounds sounds good. Sounds like it'll be a good bonding um, experience, and yeah, I think it's good to get out there and do the 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 family stuff as a group. But I also think it's good to have the. Um, you know the single sex experiences as as well male and female so yeah 
Yeah, and the girls are having uh, my wife and my daughter. Uh, they're having a bit of a girls' night. Uh, they're having a bit of a party at our house, oh, cool. uh, which which was sort of the catalyst for me going right. Oh, boys, we're going camping. Um, <laughs> I was like, nah, we're getting out of the house while the girls do the girls' thing. We'll go and do the boys' thing, and that's good and for all them, that though, isn't it? So it is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent. Now, speaking of things that people think are good for them, (laughs) Labor has bowed to pressure from business over its plans to force multinational companies to disclose an unprecedented level of tax information, opting to follow less onerous international standards. Global fund managers and Australian companies, including medical giant Cochlear and CSL, warned the Albanese government's proposal, country-by-country tax reporting rules due to start on the 1st of July, risk exposing sensitive commercial data to competitors and undermining cooperation by international revenue authorities. And I quote, I can't see any reason why Australia needs to have more onerous reporting requirements than the EU. It would have pushed up our compliance costs and led us to disclosing commercially sensitive information, Cochlear boss Dig Howard said on Thursday. CSL Chief Financial Officer Joy Linton said tax transparency needed to be balanced with the cost and complexity of reporting additional information that may not be meaningful to the public. About 2,500 multinational entities with Australian activities would have been required to publicly disclose their tax Uh, their approach to tax compliance, their effective tax rate in each country where they do business, expenses from related party transactions, and a list of intangible assets held by their global operations. But amended legislation introduced into Parliament last week wound back the plan significantly, and the Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Dr Andrew Lee, who has shepherded Labor's efforts to tackle the multinational tax avoidance, signalled that more consultation with business was planned moving forward. The data disclosures on related party expenses, effective tax rates and intangible assets were removed on Thursday. The government also opted to delay the application of the new laws by 12 months to July 1st, 2024. Dr. Lee said that Australia would follow rules in place across the European Union, a concession to business leaders expressing frustration Australia was preparing to go well beyond the rules in place in other countries. The government estimates it is it loses $4.6 billion in tax from large corporations every year and wants to crack down on the use of complex structures and subsidy groups. Treasury told the government similar country-by-country rules in the United Kingdom led some companies to simplify their tax affairs, either by removing dormant structures or operating through subsidies. About 2,500 companies are expected to be covered based on the Organisation for Economic Cooperation and Development Standards. The Australian Financial Review revealed last week that fund managers in Europe, North America and Asia with more than $120 trillion in investments were lobbying Treasurer Jim Chalmers over the planned publicly accessible tax disclosure database, covering firms with an annual global income of $1 billion or more. CSL's Miss Linton 
said Australia should follow the EU tax transparency disclosure requirements to ensure a globally consistent approach for companies with international operations. The government handed over more than 300 pages of documents to the Senate on Thursday covering the public consultation about the country covered country plan, and the submissions revealed concerns from companies including BAE Systems, BP, Pinsurum Partners, as well as lobbying groups, including the Business Council and the Materials Council of Australia. Big four firm PricewaterhouseCoopers, the subject of a scathing parliamentary <laughs> report over its breaches of confidentiality rules in yeah, the tax leak scandal. They've got a little bit of an asterisk next to their name whenever it comes up now, haven't they? They absolutely do. Um, they've also warned against some of the sensitive data being made public. They should know. Uh, the proposed legislation may result in unintended consequences relating to the publication of commercially sensitive information, it said. In certain cases, publication of this information may be seriously prejudicial for a- to any entity's commercial position. PwC told a Treasury consultant the rules should be delayed until at least July 2025. Rules will not Talk to other countries, Corporate Tax Association Executive Director Michelle Denise said groups representing the largest taxpayers had been behind the push of the review of Australia's corporate tax transparency regime. And I quote, for years now, we have been advocating for a joint approach to corporate transparency in Australia, one where corporates and other stakeholders co-design a transparency regime and informs stakeholders through meaningful data, keeps compliance costs to a minimum and aligns with global reporting obligations, both current and emerging, she said. While early indications are that the government may temper some aspects of its proposed country-by-country reporting law, Australia will still have a disjointed incremental regime that will not talk to other transparency regimes. Ms. Denise said the international pushback to the original proposed plan was unprecedented for an Australian tax measure. An invitation from government to sit down with all stakeholders and build a regime that complements the global push for corporate tax transparency was urgently needed, she continued. Opposition finance spokeswoman Jane Hume called the change another indictment on Labor's economic team and their now famous incompetence. After bungling the passage of the compensation scheme of last resort and the inability to pass financial accountability regime, Labor needs to reassess whether its economic team is up to the job of delivering certainty and stability to drive confidence and investment. However, groups including the Tax Justice Network and the Centre for International Corporate Tax Accountability and Research told the Treasury they actually welcomed Australia's efforts to be a world leader in tackling multinational tax avoidance. Now, tax law is, by its definition, the most dry, horrendously boring subject, and part of my degree was in, it was in tax law, and so I'm very familiar uh, with how boring this subject can be. So we're not going to go into too much of the nitty-gritty details about this, but basically it sounds like to me this is a situation that the Albanese government has really kicked the hornet's nest mm. uh, in trying to shine the light into a lot of these multinational tax avoidance 
uh, situations, which we know they do. Massive companies, the likes of Apple, Google, you know, basically, if you can name it, if it's, it, they're probably doing something. Uh, you know, people are aware there are countries that are quote unquote tax havens uh, where they funnel their money so that they don't have to pay taxes or minimize the amount of taxes that they pay in other countries. And it sounds like the Australian government is trying to at least shine the light on that. 4.6 billion is what they they estimate they lose per year in tax from large corporations. That's not a number to sneeze at. That's a pretty big number. But there are countries like the United States number, that would lose a I lot did, more. It's it's a big number, but to to be honest, it's not as big as what I thought it would be. Yeah. I'm actually surprised. It is a big number, but it's yep. not it's not nearly as big as I thought it would be. But this is also just on government estimates. The problem is is the government doesn't really know I I think how big this is the tip of the iceberg type situation. I don't know that they know how much they really because because money the money's being moved around and they are just having an estimate of of where they, you know, effectively what they think that they they are getting. But Regardless of how you cut it, $4.6 billion is a lot of money. Mm -hmm. um, and, of course, I think if the Australian government did something like this, it would cause possibly other governments to do similar things. So I'll pass this over. What do you think? Do you think this is government step too far or do you think this is a, a step in the right direction? Yeah, look, I... I got a couple of, uh, I think there's a couple of perspectives on this. I think first off, from um, the perception point of view, and as listeners know, Albo's uh, a regular listener to um, Australia Talks. It's poor optics, in my opinion. Now, that's a very shallow. Uh, comment on it given how large and complex it is however shallow um, optics often often sway the populace often sway voters and this to me uh, unless you sell the message in a particularly good way comes across as oh, okay we're just bowing to pressure from uh, big business uh, again that's that's an initial observation I thought the comments, uh, and I, I think probably you got some of that information from the Australian Financial Review article yes. by Tom McElroy. Yep. 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 Uh, he'd made the comment. Oh, sorry, not he. Uh, where's my notes? Uh, the cochlear boss, Dig Howard, you'd made the, uh, you'd read out where they had said that they can't see any reason why Australia needs to have more onerous reporting requirements than the EU. Yep. I thought that was a fair enough uh, comment. As you said, maybe Australia can lead the way. It's uh, an issue that it's not just a problem in Australia, multinational corporations shifting their money around. Uh, so maybe it is a case of we can lead the way. I think there's a penalty and a cost to that. So you can start to devolve into, is it a, or not a devolve, evolve, uh, depends on your perspective, 
into is it a, a is it a moral argument on what's happening with the the taxes? I thought on the surface of it that was a fairly um, reasonable comment to make because to me the the Europe the EU is is such a heavily bureaucratic and regulated organisation that. If they've got the rules in and Australia's complying with that, to me that seems to be a, a pretty a pretty far way to go. Uh, the other side of it, and this is this is why I found it. This is why I couldn't give you a straight an answer straight off the uh, straight off the the bat. I mean, obviously, government regularly goes too too far for me, but I, I thought this was a, a complex one. I was looking at the. Uh, comment there about uh where was it uh you'd mentioned your thing that there's 120 trillion and we said billion was a large amount of money trillion is an, an insane amount of money i remember doing the calculations once and if you spent a dollar every second it would take you thirty thousand years to spend a trillion dollars. Mm. It's 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 just huge. So when I heard that there was one hundred and twenty trillion dollars in investments, financing, lobbying of the government, well, you know, it doesn't it's matter how much. It's a very big stick. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It doesn't matter yeah. how much they talk about. Uh, yeah. Stakeholders and everything. That is the amount of money that buys governments and buys politicians. So, look for me, it's part of par for the course having politicians fold into biz uh, to big business because they need to serve their their lobbying customers. Uh, exactly. And yeah, and on. just on that, like, and this is kind of what bothers me somewhat as well as yep. we've got fund managers in Europe, North America and Asia that hold more than 120 trillion investments and these small group of people are lobbying our government to basically change the rules around publicly accessible tax mm. disclosures. What are so immediately I go, well, what are you trying to hide? I, I'm also like, yeah. Yeah. you know, at the same time, I have to say, you know, I don't necessarily think that everyone should show all their cards f all the time. But the fact that this was so heavily pushed back against, I don't know, makes me a little bit suspicious that, you know, I'm sure some of these funds are not. You know, the most, uh, some of these fund managers. I work in finance. I know these guys. I've met funds managers. These are the exact kind of guys that people think of uh, that are just very uh, uh, full of themselves and, you know, uh, not afraid to to necessarily skirt the rules to uh, make some money. So it kind of bothers me that, that, you know, the government has obviously been effectively pushed around by big business. I, I think so. I think that's a reasonable thing. And there's telltale signs. One of them that just stood out to me, again, from that uh, that article. And look, have, have a listen to this polywaffle from Assistant Minister for Competition, Charities and Treasury, Andrew Lay. Yeah, I'll, just, I'll read it verbatim. The government will continue to engage with stakeholders in our commitment to introduce a public country-by-country -country re reporting 
regime. Over the coming months, we will work with industry and civil society on the appropriate level of disaggregated reporting. This will build on refinements we have already made to align our approach more closely with the European Union's public country-by-country regime. I mean, that's that's almost a winning wink, wink word bingo card filled out in a, in a single statement. And when they talk like that, they're hiding something. And that's what bothers me at the core of this. It does. And I would think uh, Andrew Lee, I actually looked him up um, because he he holds a PhD. And I was like, oh, what, what in? And he he is like a was a university lecturer. Uh, he he holds a uh, like a PhD in economics. Like this is a very smart man who comes from a very prestigious background. He holds a PhD in public policy from Harvard, and he graduated the University of Sydney first class honors in arts and law. Um, he was the recipient of the Economic Society of Australia's Young Economist in Economics Award and a fellow of the Australian Academy of Social Sciences. He's written a number of books, like ten or twelve. Like he's mm. this. This wow. is a very. This is a man that you know has has a lot of probably a lot of really good ideas uh, that I think. His his idea on paper, and look, I don't. I say this, I don't know if this was his idea, and, and he's running with it. But um, he's part of the face of this, so he. This is a great plan on paper, but I think the reality is what we've seen is business is going to push back because this is how the the tax systems have been set up all around the world for many many years, and a lot of big companies. Shuffle, shuffle money offshore. Uh, j- just so our listeners understand, this is a really basic uh, explanation of of the sort of things companies do. I'm not saying they all do this, but this is this is a good example. Uh, if let's say uh, we'll just take Apple for example, they uh, obviously sell most and make most of their money in the United States. What they can do though is they can have effectively as uh, uh, for lack of a better term like a shell company uh, subsidi- a subsidiary in somewhere like say Ireland which has yep. a very low actually I think it's zero tax rate for big business and what they'll do is all of the profits that they're going to be taxed on their subsidiary in this tax haven Ireland or something will effectively send them a bill for the use of, say, the Apple logo. So Apple America will transfer the, the rights and the copyright for that logo to their subsidiary. And then at the end of the year, that subsidiary will bill them conveniently the amount of profit that they've made. And so they have to pay this bill. Oh, now we've made no money. Oh, how sad is that? Oh, Meanwhile, Apple Apple Ireland's made, you know, billions and billions of dollars and effectively has done nothing. And this is, again, an extremely simplified explanation of the sort of thing that we're talking about. They're shuffling money offshore so that they can avoid paying taxes. And this is really what this this bill is targeting to say, mm. stop moving your money offshore, 
pay your taxes here, pay your fair share. And I think most people, most I think the average Australian would agree with that, that that's a good idea. That was my, look, that was my difficulty. The, the principle of it appealed to me. I can understand why you're wanting to, to do it. I just uh, have a very low level of confidence and trust in the people implementing it because we see that uh, when these things are implemented, the people who write the laws are the people who want to exploit the loopholes and I'm just not convinced we're going to see a difference to it other than you know, a whole lot, of, whole lot of razzmatazz. But as a principle, I think it's a reasonable thing if you're extracting profits from a particular geographical region and uh, populace that under the current system, there's a duty to pay some sort of uh, compensation in the form of tax. Exactly. And look, this comes back to, you know, large companies exploiting uh, just groups of people all around the world, especially in, in places, you know, like third world countries and, mm-hmm. and imp- impoverished countries and things like that. Um, and this is a story really as old as time. <laughs> like this has oh, been going yeah, on yeah. for a very long time. So this isn't something new. And, of course, the pushback from them was going to be massive. Um, so none of this really surprises me. It is a bit... Um, Initially, I was a bit surprised that this government actually had uh, the, the balls to do this. This is like a big deal. Mm. And secondly, unfortunately, that they didn't have the balls to go through with it, quite frankly, um, that they have, it, it. you know, it's been pushed back and uh, unfortunately- and they're watered not, down. There's watered a, down we, a lot. What do um, we have? Labor has bowed to pressure from business. Uh, no, no, sorry, that's not it. Uh, yeah, data disclosures on related party expenses, effective tax rates, and intangible assets were removed, and they've also delayed the application of the laws by 12 months. Uh, you can see that being delayed again because insert plausible reason for delaying, and then we can't do this because we've got an election. Uh, that's where my level of trust in their credibility recedes dramatically. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Well, because PwC has already asked them to delay it another 12 months till 2025. And by that point, yeah, and by that point, you know, it's going to be forgotten and it'll just quietly be removed and, you know, and that's instead in the water, so. Oh, just that's a big... (laughs) All, all the machinations of the uh, the the big the big stage, yeah. What's happening on smaller stages, like in a little town? A little town. It's time for two, our two ticks town tour. I've been everywhere, man. I've been everywhere, man. This week's town is one that's internationally known. Uh, but it is a really tiny town of only 1,900 permanent residents. I'm not going to tell you exactly where it is. I want you to guess. I think you'll. I think you will. I'll give you a few hints. Oh, don't give I me th- any any hints. I and look for the 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 listeners. Obviously, DK and I have uh, organised when we're going to sort out the times and who's going to to do what's. 
Sorry, hope that's not too devastating for people. I think you can, <laughs> I think you can understand how the podcasts work. And DK said, I'm going to give you a, a, a guess at this. It was a, a place that I'd found interesting. And so without giving me any hints, can I guess, is it Kubipedi? It is. Oh, oh no. Hulk! Hulk. <laughs> <laughs> It is. I think I've revealed this in the past that I have a thing for Kubipedi. So oh, it's maybe it, that's it, why it went in my head. Maybe I yeah. had a little bit. Yeah, mate. Okay, fair enough. So it's in northern South Australia. Uh, the origin of the name of the town is thought to derive from the local. Uh, I'm and I'm probably going to mispronounce this, so I do apologise. The local Abol- Aboriginal people, their language is called the Kukatha, and their word was Kupa Pity, which translate as white fella hole in the ground, or huh. Gababidi, which mean white man's holes. So Kubapiti is known as the opal capital of the world. There used to be around about a thousand miners, but today there's only about a hundred. Um, and this sounds like a joke, <laughs> but there are signs all around town that tell you not to walk backwards <laughs> or run, um, especially at night. Why do you oh think that is? God. Why can you not walk backwards in Cuba PD? Well, I know, I know the. Well, hang on. I think I know the answer to that because I've seen the, I've seen the overhead views, and there's bloody holes everywhere. Yeah, yeah. Like, so it's just a ridiculous. If you saw it, if you saw it in a, if you didn't know about Cuba PD and you saw it in a, a movie. You would think, no, someone's just taken a lot of license with the CGI. There cannot be that many holes, but there are. Yeah, there's there's literally tens of thousands. Yeah. Uh, they're effectively they're, they're shafts that are dug. Uh, generally, they're between five and twenty meters deep. Um, more often than not, they're they're that fifteen to twenty meter deep. Um, and if you would fall into one, you'd oh, very, very likely be killed uh, at worst and stuck at best. Unfortunately, a number of people have been killed by falling into these these mine holes. Because mm. um, they, what they do is they dig a shaft straight down uh, and they, uh, little bit by little bit, uh, with like a, a boring machine, and as they dig it up, there is there's two main veins of opal, uh, and once they're down to the desired depth, they'll lower themselves down, and it's all dug by hand. Opal is really uh, fragile, so you have to dig it out by hand, and as a result, if your sort of vein uh, dries up effectively, quite often you'll you know move. 10 meters down the road and dig another hole and, and try from, from that direction. So um, as a result, there's tens of thousands of these holes. Um, and listeners, if you haven't seen it, I would urge you go to Google Maps, go to uh, the 
like overhead satellite image mm. uh, with the satellite photo and just have a look, sort of look around out in the outskirts of town. The town's not particularly big. As I said, it only houses just under 2,000 people. Um, and you'll see mounds of dirt in the satellite photos, like everywhere. And and where those mounds of dirt are is there's a, there is a hole or at least was a hole at some point. And they're everywhere. Um, like I said, literally tens of thousands of these holes. It's the other really it's interesting. It's cartoon-like, isn't it? It it is. It's absurd. There's there's that movie, Holes from oh, back in the early two thousands. Uh, some of our listeners might remember, and it it's effectively that in real life. So scorching hot. It's uh, average summer temperature is around thirty five degrees Celsius, uh, but the maximum temperature there is in the high 40s, like 47 degrees Celsius, which is insane. Uh, however, the locals of Kuvapiti are pretty clever because about 50% of the houses uh, in the town are completely or or partially underground. So they'll have a, a dwelling above ground. So if you go there, you'll see a lot of houses above ground, but um, a lot of them are at least, they have significant basements. They're effectively two-story buildings that are built at ground level. Um, because under the dirt, it stays around 23 degrees Celsius year-round with, without any power uh, needing to, to cool anything. So... Kuberpeti is this sort of weird mining town slash uh, it's becoming, there's a lot of like ecotourism and that sort of stuff there because the town is, is very small and it, 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 uh, it's come up with these ideas. The locals there for a long time have had all these ideas about how to basically cool down in the desert uh, heat without using too much electricity and very little water. It doesn't rain very often out there, and all the water that they have comes out of the ground, uh, out of out of effectively giant bores. I think it costs about three times the amount uh, as the major cities for a liter of water. So it's very expensive out there for water. So you can't you can't fill up a pool <laughs> and go for a swim or anything like that. Um, you have to find another way to cool down, and so. Naturally, being uh, miners, they started digging holes in their floors and uh, or living in the side of the hill. And so, very cool. There is some of these are open to the public. There is a hotel that you can go and stay at that is underground, um, or at least partially, well, mostly underground, I should say. Um, and if you want an opal or you find yourself in the middle of the northern uh, South Australian outback, stop in at Kubapedi, get yourself an opal, stay underground, cool off, and uh, don't fall into a hole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I could think, think of, uh, to be honest, I could think of, I could think of better things than sinking bloody shaft into the ground 20 metres and lowering myself down on a rope into that i'm i'm not particularly claustrophobic but that just doesn't appeal to me at all 
<laughs> no, no. <laughs> I, 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 look, I would like to go out there and 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 sort of have a look. Um, you know, go and have a look at one of the mines and that kind of stuff. I, I'm not sure if they're if you if you can even do that. I don't know. Um, I might just go stick my head over a hole and <laughs> throw a rock down or something like that. I'd, I'd quite like to go and see. I just think it's a very unusual sort of place. Um, oh, I understand the appeal. I can yeah, 100% guess, oh, I understand why you'd want to go there. Yeah, but I don't think I could do it. The other thing is you would have to let someone know where you are because if you were down the bottom and, say, your rope breaks or something like that, oh, you're, oh, yeah. <laughs> there's no way to get out. You're stuck down a hole. Uh, <laughs> oh. <laughs> straight, it's, you know, shafts are straight down. And they're, they're big enough that you can't really easily sort of touch the sides, you know, and shimmy your way up or, or something like oh, that. So, <laughs> yeah, it would be. I mean, you'd need to let people know where, where you're going at least or where your mine site is and... Um, but it is reasonably flat out there, so I think it would be easy to spot where your at least where your car is and be like, oh, you must be out there somewhere, sort of thing. So. Oh, okay, that's a good that's a that's a good point. Yep, I can, um, I can, I can see that. But I imagine it's happened before. You know, you can they'd be lying if they told you that you know no one's ever got stuck out there and forgotten about or you know. It's, <sighs> but if you're underground, you're not going to overheat, which is really good. Speaking of overheating. Australia has set an extremely ambitious goal to build the first complete quantum computer. Hang on, I hear you say. I've seen photos and videos of quantum computers in the US and Europe, and you're right, but those are prototypes that aren't complete and, unfortunately, are prone to errors. Australia will strive to build the first error-corrected quantum computer within the decade. This is a huge and expensive goal that, if achieved, would put the country at the forefront of the new technology. Unveiled in May, the, the National Quantum Strategy is the Australian government's plan to grow the quantum industry in Australia. The strategy sets out a long-term vision for how Australia will take advantage of the opportunities of quantum technologies. Through the strategy, they plan to... One, invest in, connect, and grow Australia's quantum research and industry to compete with the world's best. Two, drive commercialization through new programs to incentivize and continue growth of quantum use cases. Three, create a pipeline for investment in industry-ready quantum technologies through the National Reconstruction Fund. And four, support new quantum infrastructure to ensure it meets the Australian industry's needs now and into the future. Five, cement Australia as the world's top destination for quantum talent. Six, strengthen Australia's international partnerships and influence as well as opportunities for Australian quantum companies. And finally, champion responsible innovation and ensure that the growth of Australia's quantum industry supports economic prosperity while safeguarding our national interests. Mm. A lot of buzzwords in there. Yeah, yeah, no, more for the card. <laughs> That's right. That was from uh, that that snippet was from the National Quantum Strategies website. So naturally, it was always going to be full of a lot of buzzwords. Mm. Uh, but hang on, I hear you say, "What the hell <laughs> is a quantum computer?" So really briefly, compu today's computers use bits, a stream of electrical or optical pulses that represent ones or zeros 
on and off. This is called binary. Quantum computers, on the other hand, use qubits, which are typically subatomic particles, such as an electron or a proton. Qubits can represent no, numerous possible combinations of ones and zeros at the same time. Mm. This ability to simultaneously be in multiple states is called superposition. To put qubits into superposition, researchers manipulate them using precision lasers or microwave beams. Thanks to this counterintuitive phenomenon, a quantum computer with several qubits in superposition can crunch through vast number of potential outcomes simultaneously. The final result of the calculation emerges only once the qubits are measured, which immediately causes their quantum state to collapse into either a one or a zero. So it's basically magic. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) even though i understand how this works i know this is magic uh several companies including google have developed quantum computers that string together multiple qubits the basic unit of information in quantum computing as i've just explained but no one has developed a large quantum computer with error correction which is what australia's new goal has been set at Current quantum computers struggle with errors, and as they get more powerful, more errors develop. Mm. An error-corrected quantum computers is the field's holy grail. In March, the British government committed to spending £2.5 billion, which is a lot of money, on quantum <laughs> research. Yeah. yeah, there's a lot of, wow, £2.5 billion is a lot of money, on uh, quantum research over the next 10 years. So really... I guess it's not so much on a year-by-year basis. Australia's strategy does not come with a firm spending commitment at this time, and funding is going to be key to realising this strategy. Federal Finance Minister Ed Music said, I can't emphasise this enough. Quantum technologies will be truly transformative. Having a national quantum strategy paired with the National Reconstruction Fund will turn Australia into a global technology leader, building stronger industry and creating jobs for the future. This is extremely ambitious, in my opinion. Mm. I am a little bit kind of surprised by the this this government the Albanese government is very ambitious not just with this but you know with our first topic as well as other things we've spoken about recently they're not afraid to uh, really jump in with both feet into some of these incredibly ambitious projects this is one of these things that I feel like if we can pull this off, it will really cement Australia as a world leader moving into the future. Australia's, we've always kind of punched above our weight in a lot of ways, but um, this could really cement us worldwide. And, you know, as we've spoken about before, unfortunately, Australia has kind of uh, rested on their laurels for too long. We've, we've been the world's quarry and we've kind of just abused that position. Um, I feel like this could be one of those situations where we actually, you know, grab the bull by the horns, take control, and we could we could literally be the world leader in quantum computing. And and 
as much as we joke and say this is basically magic, this is the future of computing. This is a big deal. Um, and everyone is racing. Everyone is racing for this. So this this is that next step in, in that technology field. Yeah, look, that's that that's right. It's uh, it's not necessarily that's going to replace the other computers. It's just that it does uh, a number of tasks just massively better. You know, the uh, searching and research and understanding data. Um, I don't pretend to understand it, but uh, when I hear it explained to me, it's it's such a significant leap forward that once it is accomplished it will be essentially ushering in a new era of computing to the same level as what we saw when the the personal computer became available so it's it's a big deal and it's a big project and look i have uh a natural bias towards projects like this i think it's a very big tick in my book for the Albanese government, if they can pull it off. Uh, now, I know it's arguable that once developed, the idea can be stolen. However, there is a first mover advantage and attracting people to an established industry can be a massive bonus to the nation. So people in this field want to go to where the action is happening. They want to go to where the money is, you know, I mean... All this stuff costs money, and money attracts it. But if you have uh, the first move, uh, first mover advantage established, and you have an infrastructure set up, as we've seen from areas such as um, Silicon Valley, and that it gives you a long-lasting bang for buck. So, I think it's I think it's an extremely positive moved by the Albanese government. I was a little bit concerned about the, um, there was, uh, what was a Sydney Morning Herald article by Liam Menix, uh, said Australia's strategy does not come with a firm spending commitment and funding would be key to realising the strategy Bartlett said. And that bit bothered me a little bit as I'm always suspicious that we're going to run the risk of creating another script the TV series uh, Utopia, but to me it's a good start. <laughs> yeah, 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 I hear that. And yes, again, getting that sort of you know, wink word bingo. Uh, but taking it on its surface, being positive about it, I think it's a uh, significant project to to throw taxpayer money behind. Yeah, I think this is one of those ones where you can't realistically this probably isn't going to happen without massive amounts of government money. Um, just plain and simple. Even though several companies uh, are jumping into this, the reality is they, they're also getting government funding because this is truly cutting-edge stuff. Um, and this is going to change so many different industries. This is, this is the sort of uh, leap that we've seen from you know, obviously, we went from analog to the very first computers, and that was a big deal. But going from those computers to an internet was, you know, 
and obviously the internet touches everything that we do today. I feel like this is a similar sort of jump. This is this is a massive next step because these quantum computers, because they can simultaneously crunch a lot of uh, data, they're going to be used from everything from uh, you know. Uh, the social sciences to weather prediction to security and encryption to telecommunications to infrastructure planning civil engineering like it's going to touch everything and it's basically if we can get the first quantum computer that if we can do this you're basically all those other supercomputers that you've he heard about and, you know, China's got this massive supercomputer and it can do this and blah, blah, blah. And America's got this and it can do this. This, this, this sort of computer effectively makes them all obsolete overnight. Um, that's how big of a deal this is. And I can't believe that the Albanese government has gone, yeah, we can do that. Um, this is the sort of, you know... I almost feel that this is reminiscent of uh, John F. Kennedy, uh, Cold War, space race type stuff. Um, this is a really big deal. And, well, that's, and, a, that's a big bow. Uh, seriously, this is this is a huge deal. And if, if Australia can pull this off, we have a lot of very, very clever people uh, uh, computer science researchers in that in Australia. Um, Google Maps was developed in Australia. Um, uh, Wi-Fi was an Australian invention. Like, we, we do have a bit of history in these fields, and it's not just, you know, we're not just completely pulling this out of nowhere and going, oh, we'll do this, and where we've got no, you know. Well, so That's just true. And I've, I've uh, when I've talked about this uh, with with people sort of an, an analogy that I've used is with the industrial revolution, which as we know, fundamentally changed the world. You had the start of the industrial revolution and people started to see the potential and you had several, several decades and it got to a point where I think there might've even been a famous quote by someone saying everything that can be invented has now been Invented and <laughs> that was yes, oh, that's the, right. Yeah, you know, that was yeah, late later late in the eighteen hundreds or something. But we got to that point where it was just an incredible level to be at, and people were just marveling at these two and three and four horsepower steam engines and what could be done with that. And then all of a sudden, we got uh, the use of you know oil fossil fuels, uh, metallurgy, and suddenly we were, we just leapfrogged off the back of these discoveries into what we consider now the modern industrial revolution with, uh, with, with, with motors of hundreds of, of, of horsepowers, machines that were able to, to do incredible amounts of work. And what looked amazing suddenly became just nothing as we realize the potential of it and i've said to a number of people what we're seeing with the computer revolution we're just in the start of it and yeah quantum computing yeah. is going to be one of those things that you know your kids are going to look at and say <laughs> understand what a leap forward it is 
Yeah, because, like, you know, already, like, you know, those supercomputers I was talking about, those those sorts of things are used every day. They're always booked out for things Mm. like... um, you know, machine learning scenarios, cybersecurity, uh, even really, uh, really mundane things like um, uh, optimizing like traffic flows in cities and things mm-hmm. like that, or um, like uh, uh, drug research or, or disease research and stuff like that in the medical field. So, all of those things, we're basically. If we get this right and we can create a, a non uh, an, a complete quantum computer with no errors, we will make those old supercomputers, you know, look like a bicycle compared to a Ferrari. You know, it's it's, it's going to be laughable how slow they were by contrast. And of course, as a result of that, literally everything that we have today from you know, like I said, uh, medicine and disease care mm. to material sciences, new types of batteries, uh, cybersecurity is going to change overnight for good and bad, unfortunately, because, of course, encryption is basically going to be useless uh, as, as we use it today. Uh, m- modeling for, for financial and economic uh, uh Machine learning and AI, again, for better or worse. Um, and all of this is happening. It, it's all, like I said, it's already happening. There are quantum computers, but they're not very practical right now because, one, they're huge. And, two, uh, their, their cooling requirements are it, it are absolutely extreme. And they're not, they're prone to errors. So, but... As the technology develops, as it matures, it's going to change literally everything. Um, for the better, I would hope. Yeah. <laughs> but there's obviously a certain degree of unknown. And and I would I would really like Australia to be at the forefront of these emerging technologies. We can so do it. I. And, we, you know, there's no reason not to. No, look, I, I, I agree with you. On that one, one hundred percent, yeah. And look, uh, hopefully, we can relegate. Uh, there will be a stage where the world's most advanced supercomputers will simply be relegated to history. Yeah, which I mean, in a way, it kind of sounds a bit sad. We've spent so much time and effort and money on these on these machines, and <laughs> it's like, nah, you crap, and there's no, <laughs> you know, in, straight in the bin. <laughs> but that's the reality of progress, so. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And speaking of history, we've got actually got a bumper crop for this week in Australian history. I come from a land, land, land. Uh, I don't know whether it was uh, the winter solstice uh, signalling a, a change in, in cycles, but... Uh, yeah, there's a few. There's a few ones here. So look, I'll try. I, I won't cool. dwell too much on each one, but there, I normally go through the list that I've got and colour a few of the uh, the uninteresting ones, in my opinion. But I found it a bit tricky. So let's huh. launch into it. <laughs> June twenty second, eighteen ninety six. The second Victoria Bridge is opened in Brisbane by the Governor of Queensland, Lord Lemington. The previous bridge was destroyed by floodwaters. Up in Brisbane. Oh. Yeah. 
1926, the Council for Scientific Research, CSIR, formed, later became the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organisation. That's in keeping with our theme about uh, technology for Australia. They've yeah, did you say 19, 1926? Yeah, wow, it's exactly. a lot older than I thought. Yeah. Yep. Wouldn't have, yeah, wouldn't have been my guess at all. I would have, mm. I would have put it as 60s, 70s. Yeah, yeah exactly. I, yeah. 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 That was, that was a surprise for me. Uh, 1977, the Uniting Church of Australia is formed from the Methodist, Congregational, and Presbyterian churches. Um, June 23rd. 1903, the first Australian postage stamps are issued, replacing pre-Federation colonial stamps. And I just, I'm sure on a previous Australia Talks, we talked about something about the Australian postage stamps. Were they one of the first in the world or we some? We did talk about the Australian postage stamps. Uh, we... We did a bit of a, a, a brief little deep dive into uh, um, uh, postage, and it was about the Australian. Um, now you now you tested my memory. Oh well, that's what, <laughs> yeah. I, I knew you'd have a better memory of it than me. It was it, it was Australia had the very first prepaid postage system where uh, the envelopes were right. embossed. Oh, and you'd, and you'd oh, wow. purchase an envelope and you would mail it. It was before stamps. It was it predated stamps. Oh, well retrieved from the memory yeah. bank. I mean, that's why I threw it over to you. I thought, DK, I'll know. <laughs> uh, 1979 on June 23rd, the Eastern Suburbs Railway, is, railway Line is open in Sydney uh, in 2000. Uh, a fire at a backpacker hostel at Childers, Queensland, kills 15. And that was something that uh, really sort of captured everyone's attention, particularly being so, you know, essentially so so recent. Uh, yeah. You have something like that just go so poorly. Um, I remember this one because yeah. um, I'd been to Childers, uh, you know, a few times, and it, it was a beautiful... I mean, it still is. It's still there. Um, it's a beautiful building. And it was like, in my mind, because I was quite young, I was kind of like, oh, it's sad that, like, you know, it's such a beautiful building burnt down, oh. uh, let alone all the all the, the backpackers, unfortunately, that, oh. that went up with it. So Yeah, exactly. Um, but, yeah, I believe it's still there. Huh. The building. I think they re- yeah. re- redid it. Yeah. Yeah. June 24th, this is a jam-packed day, uh, 1856 on June 24th, Queen Victoria makes Norfolk Island a separate settlement from Tasmania to be administered by the Governor of New South Wales. Um, yeah, that was earlier than I thought. That's 19- interesting to me that it was part of Tasmania. Because mm, yeah. Norfolk Island's very far from Tasmania. Exactly. Exactly. I don't, look, yeah. I didn't understand that either. But yeah. Yeah, there's a lot, I suppose there was a lot of politics back then as well. Uh, 1913, Joseph Cook becomes the sixth Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, 1953, British and Australian governments announced that Britain was developing atomic weapons and they would be tested in Australia. It was in 53. I, 
I almost did this as my two tick towns talk. I wanted to pick something from South Australia, yep. and I was actually going to pick the town that was closest to where one of the atomic weapons was tested. Unfortunately, it's very, very far from where it was tested. So there isn't any real settlements out there, which is obviously why they were tested out there. Um, so I couldn't really do it. So, uh, yeah, oh, fair, fair enough. I can understand the appeal, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's got a good story. Yeah, exactly. Uh, 1978, the first Sydney gay and lesbian Mardi Gras is held to mark International Gay Solidarity Day. That seems that long ago. Uh, 78. Uh, 1987, Christopher Scase buys the Seven Network. He was a larger-than-life character, old Scasey. Uh, 1992, uh, Nick Griner re resigns as Premier of New South Wales after corruption finding against him. And in 2010, Julia Gillard becomes the first female Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, June 25th, 1852, the Murrumbidgee River flooded Gundagai, New South Wales, killing 89 of the population of 250. The town oh. was moved to higher ground. 89 of 250. That's, that's a huge toll. That's, yeah, that's devastating. It is devastating. I mean, I mean that's just... That's, That's just you know everyone in town is is affected significantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That um, those figures really struck home, or not struck home. I shouldn't say that. Those figures really um, yeah, hit at the heart. I thought that's just that's just terrible for so many people. Um, eighteen sixty seven, bush rangers, the Clark brothers, were executed in Sydney. Got to say, I haven't heard of the Clark Brothers as Bush Rangers. How about you? No, I haven't. No, I haven't heard they of almost, the. Yeah, sound like like uh, rogue accountants or something, don't they? The Clark Brothers, for some reason, it doesn't sort of have the. Yeah, you know, it's not the bold Ben Hall or the Ned Kelly or, or something. Yeah, sort of Alley like. Gang or anything like that. Yeah, no. yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> We're the Clark Brothers. Um, <laughs> June 26, 1797, HMS Reliance arrives in Sydney from the Cape of Good Hope, carrying stores ordered by Governor Hunter and Merino sheep imported by John MacArthur. And boy, didn't they catch on. <laughs> I think that was a good decision uh, by, oh. by John MacArthur. <laughs> yeah. And from memory, Merino sheep were uh, Spanish in origin. I think. Oh, really? Yeah. I, I, I look. I'm happy to be corrected, but uh, just going off off memory, um, they they had a Spanish origin there. Yep. And, I've uh, just googled it. You were you're right. Yep. Yeah. MacArthur had picked them because of uh, what he saw as similarity in climates, and uh, they were a particularly robust breed. It says here that for several centuries, Spain kept a strict monopoly on them and they were not allowed to export them um, at all. And anyone that risked it was would receive the death penalty. So wow. it was a, a bit of a, a bit of a state secret, I guess. Um, I, I can see why. They're really yeah. good sheep. So, yeah. yeah. Well, that's a bit of a coup. Uh, 1950 on June 26th, 
28 die in Australia's worst aviation disaster when an ANA Skymaster crashes near York in Western Australia. 28. Yeah. I, look, terrible, but I'm glad that 28's the um, the worst aviation disaster. Now, it probably says something for the uh, aviation industry in Australia. So Yes. Yeah, very highly regulated and uh, very, very safe as a result. Qantas is the only major airline around the world that's never had a significant, uh, like, fatal crash, basically. Mm. Yeah, yeah, exactly. As made famous by Rain Man in that... um... Oh, that's right, yeah. God, what was that movie? I think it's called Rain Man. Oh, <laughs> I'm pretty sure. <laughs> I think it's that movie. Yes, 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 yes. And he wants to travel on Qantas because it's the safest. That's right. Oh, my goodness. I haven't seen that movie If only long there time. was some clue to the title. Gosh, yeah. Shit. So it, it's a bit of a misnomer, though, because, of course, there are fatal- fatalities on Qantas flights. Yeah. Uh, people die on planes. They It just happens. Um you know, sometimes you'll get on a flight with an elderly person and they might just pass away, you know, they yeah. might go to sleep and not wake up sort of thing. So, But as a result of Qantas's, you know, uh, no one's – they've never had a fatal crash effectively. They've had incidents yeah. but yeah. but nothing. So touch wood, you know, that, that they don't, uh, especially when I'm not – when I'm on board. <laughs> I don't want to be the first, that's for sure. no. no. Um, 1988, the Australian uh, Recording Industry Association compiles the first ARIA charts. Uh, 1998, the Murray Man Geoglyph appears in the desert near Murray in South Australia. And yeah, you can you can look that look that up. Uh, There's not really it's not really agreed on how the outline of the Murray Man got there. Um, I think there's a bit so of speculation it, it was that dis- someone got the dozer out and had a bit of a uh, GPS thing, but I don't think it's fully resolved, is it? I'm not sure because it was, it was like it wasn't discovered in 1998. Like it was no. done in 1998 because <laughs> um, we had satellite photos of the area beforehand and then it wasn't yeah. there and then it was there. Um yeah, this is one of those really weird, you know, like people like to make crop circles and that. Oh, I don't know. Yes. It's it's yeah, someone it's it's huge. So someone had to um Yeah, I think you're right. They probably got a tractor out and zipped around like, you know, had pre sketched it or something. Oh, I don't know, but it, it's kinda cool. It's a good prank. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. Exactly right. Uh, where are we? Just lost my. Yep. Uh, 2006, the world's first successful triple organ transplant is performed in Australia. And just as I saw that, I thought I should have actually looked up who that was on. And <laughs> what organs? <laughs> yes, uh, I thought that was a, it would have been an obvious question to ask. Um, but I might have to put that in. Look, I tell you what, if we can just bear with me for 
a moment because the question I've, I I've, have... I've already beaten you to it. So oh, you have. A, God, was hey, Bru- God, that was quick. Who it was, was it? It was in Bru- <laughs> Brisbane's Prince Charles Hospital. Uh, they can't tell us any details about the patient, but it involved uh, suspected, because they never actually confirmed it, but they, it was a heart, liver, and lung transplant. Because ah. of, of the doctors that were involved in it, they were like, it had to be those three, but they didn't actually say anything. So, because of course, Ooh. our legislation in Australia protects um, the privacy of, of patients. Um, but yeah, so that's kind of cool. Heart, liver, and lung all at once. That's, a, that's wow. pretty serious. That's, you know, what's your poor bastard that that's. <laughs> That's full oh on. God. I have to tell. That is full. Look, I got my my brother. It was to to me one of the one of the funniest and best presents that I'd ever heard of. Um, he was more more my brother's mate. The fam the family knew him, but uh, my brother and this bloke were were close, and he had a heart lung transplant. Um, and when it got to the point that he could get visitors. My brother turned up and gave him a present, and when his mate unwrapped it, it was a packet of Winnie Reds. <laughs> <laughs> it's still what he tickles me to this day. <laughs> it just and apparently it went down so well. Oh, that's fantastic! Oh, it was oh. a classic. Yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I still enjoy thinking about that one. Um, June 27th, 1911, good, good name for a uh, pistol, 1911, the Royal Military College of Duntroon opened. Uh, oh, okay. Uh, you probably knew that one. Uh, 19- uh, no, I, no, I actually didn't know that it was opened oh. in 1911. That's yeah. later than I would have thought, but I've actually never been there myself. It's an army thing. so Yeah, yeah, right. Right. Uh, 1949, a coal strike involving 23,000 miners began and lasted for seven weeks until Australian military forces were used to break the strike, the first time that such a thing had happened in peacetime Australia. So, yeah, that's a bit full on. Um, mm. Mm. 1987, former federal Liberal Party leader Billy Snedden is found dead from a heart attack in a motel room. You know, there was the usual sort of scuttlebug about that, but yeah, yeah, was it really a heart attack? Yeah, exactly, exactly. Uh, two thousand and one, the Intelligence Services Act, two thousand and one, introduced into Parliament, providing a legislative basis for the Australian Secret Intelligence Service (ASIS) and the Defence Signals Director Directorate (DSD), both of which had been a Previously established by executive order, and this is one of those things I, at first glance, and initially thought had happened like post nine eleven, um, but it actually didn't. It happened in June, so this wasn't. Even though it, it sort of feels like it was like a post nine eleven knee jerk reaction, it actually wasn't. It was. Well on the cards and even, you know, done before nine eleven happened. So convenient timing, perhaps. Well, it is it is convenient timing, but yes, you could go off into whole sorts of 
speculations about what happened that year. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you could. And we don't you have could. time for no, that. No, we don't. We don't. In fact, we've got one more day left. June 28th. 1894, a colonial conference held in Ottawa, Canada, resolved to lay a telegraph cable between Canada and Australia. And I think it's always worth remembering how long telegraphs have been uh, around. And in fact, the uh, fax, well, not the fax machine, but the uh, fax protocol, as I understood it, was developed uh, back when you had telegraph because someone worked out if you can divide a picture up into a whole series of grids, then you can send, send it via telegraph, whether that should be a black or a white dot, at, you know, coordinates A1, A2, A3, so on down the, the thing. So the actual concept of sending a fax is as old as the telegraph. It's crazy, hey. Yep. It, it's 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 one of those technological like connections mm. that once you start looking for things like that, you realize they're everywhere. But it is, it, you know, it does, you know. Well, I mean, fax today doesn't feel like a new technology, but I remember in my youth, it certainly did. Um, well, not new, but you know, like I don't even want to say cutting edge, but it was certainly, you know, uh, uh, it felt new-ish, uh, and finding out that it was invented <laughs> way back in the day is like wait what yeah yeah i was i was surprised the first time i heard of it as as well um sort of makes sense once you you think of it as that that grid thing but uh um, yeah yeah, yeah it's interesting uh 1919 uh prime minister billy hughes signs the treaty of versailles on australia's behalf australia gained mandate over german new guinea uh, 1981, painter Russell Drysdale dies. And finally, June 28, 1880, finishing off our uh, jam-packed history session, this one, Ned Kelly is captured at Glen Rowan, Victoria. Dan Kelly, Steve Hart and Joe Byrne are killed in that incident. So uh, that rounds off our week in australian history we may have to do a um a cali gang a little mm. bit of history because it is it's a really interesting story and of course it's been held in the um australian zeitgeist sort of ever since really yep. um it, it is definitely a pretty cool story i i never um like, I thought I knew the story better than I actually did once I actually, like, went and looked it up and and sort of did a bit of a deep dive myself a few years ago. Um, I thought I knew the story better than it turns out I actually did. And once I learned the true story, I was like, oh, wow, this is actually much more interesting. So, Aldenesna, if you do want to for us to do a bit of a deep dive on the Kelly gang and Ned Kelly's history and why he's so famous and why he's still remembered and still revered in the Australian zeitgeist, please let us know because I'm more than happy to do that. Yeah, I think that I think that could be interesting. Anyway, after going through all that history, I think it's time to crack a beer for the Forex bottle top question. 
Now, I'm the one doing it this uh, week, so this might be an easy one for you. I, I had to have a little bit of a think about it, but uh, let's see how you go. What is the world's largest fish? Oh, I think it's, um, I can see it in my mind. <laughs> oh, actually, no, well, okay, this is kind of a trick question. So, the whale shark is technically a fish, but if you're talking about a, a you know, a fish fish, uh, I think it's the sunfish is the biggest, like, bony fish. I think that's how they distinguish them. Um, but I guess a whale shark is technically a fish, and they're, Ooh, they're quite a, a bit bigger. Dis- good display of not. You're c- completely correct. It is a, a, a whale shark. Uh, we've got largest confirmed individual had a length of 18.8 metres. Uh, whale shark holds many records for size in the, en- in the animal kingdom, most notably being the largest living non-mammalian vertebrate. So I think that's when you start to get into possibly some of those vaguenesses that you, you had going around in your, your head. That, that, that it's actually a, a vertebrate. Yeah. See, that's, yeah. Because it's, it's a funny thing, you know. Well, because a lot of people don't think about fish, you know, sharks as fish. They yep. technically are, yep. but, yeah, that's one of those things. So I, while you've been talking, I've just quickly looked it up, and I was I was also right. The sunfish is the largest bony fish because, of course, sharks don't have bone. They have cartilage. Uh, and the largest one ever caught... I want you to guess how much do you think it weighed? The largest, the, the, the largest sunfish or the largest whale shark? The largest sunfish. Oh God, I've seen some pictures of some massive ones. Um, yeah, I'm <laughs> going to say huge. the largest sunfish ever caught was 1.3 ton. 2.75. <sighs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, or about about just over six thousand pounds. Uh, that's wow. huge. That's absolutely oh. massive. God, but my calculations, massive. you'd need what's roughly you'd roughly need two thirds of an Olympic swimming pool full of hot chips if you wanted to eat that. <laughs> I mean, you, I couldn't put it in the back of the Ute. It's too heavy. No. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, they're phenomenal creatures. I think their whole thing is because they're very slow. Uh, yep. I think their whole thing is that they're just too big to eat. Nothing preys on them because they're just too big. Um, you sort of can't can't eat it. Mouth's not big enough. So um, very cool. Ah, well, I'm glad I got that right. Yeah, well done, well done. And on that bombshell, thank you so much for joining us for another Australia Talks, the official podcast of the r slash Australian subreddit. If you have any feedback or suggestions for topics, please let, get in touch with us on the r slash Australian subreddit or email us at Australian subreddit at proton.me. Otherwise, join us next week for another episode of Australia Talks. And remember, at r slash Australian, we are Australian. Thanks. Good night. See you, DK.